This is a Federal News Network podcast. Earlier this year, the CARES Act provided billions of dollars in new unemployment payments to Americans whose jobs were affected by the pandemic, but it also created a huge IT challenge for state unemployment agencies who had to quickly retrofit their systems to administer the pandemic payments. A volunteer group of IT experts called U.S. Digital Response sprang into action to help states out, but almost immediately they ran into a problem common across the public sector. The IT systems were closed, proprietary, and very hard to adapt to new problems. Waldo Jaquith is a member of U.S. Digital Response and a veteran of GSA's 18F organization. He talked with me about those challenges and how agencies can prevent them in the future. When dealing with state unemployment insurance software, overwhelmingly, they're using closed source software, which means that the the state doesn't have access to their own software. Uh, Other vendors don't have access to look at the software to figure out what's wrong or how it can be improved. Uh, And that's a huge shortcoming. Often, that software will will run on an open source stack using things like Linux, uh, but it would be an enormous help if these states were using open source software so it'd be easier to debug when things go wrong. Why is open source important rather than just continuing to have this, the source itself be closed but having the government own it? It's really important that government be able to look at the source code to their own software because th- that's inherent to procuring goods. If you buy cars, say GSA buys a fleet of cars, they need to be able to open up the hood to make sure that they're getting what they paid for. They're getting the V8 engine. You know, <laughs> do the brakes work? These basic things. And when you're buying closed source software, software that the government can't see the source of, you can't tell if it's garbage or not. That's a basic procurement failure. Yeah, and I, you're making a couple of other arguments, I think, in this blog post. It's, you know, tell, tell me if I'm mischaracterizing it, but I think it's sure. lower cost, better code, and, and, and more secure software. Sure, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to expand in, into those points. Sure. sure, so let me, let me, yeah. let me tackle the cost one first, because one, one potential issue that, that comes to mind is, I, I would think that bidders would come to the table with kind of an attitude of, look, you're, you're going to pay one way or the other. If, if you want to own the code or if you want the code to be open, you're going to need to pay more for it up front to compensate the vendor for the fact that they can't recoup some of their development costs through license fees or maintenance fees. And I guess my question there is, have you seen enough examples of open source clauses in the real world that would show my theory is wrong? Sure. So there's plenty of of competition in the open source space and the software space generally. And there's nothing about software being open source that makes it more likely that a customer would want to switch away to another vendor. If anything, the sorts of companies inclined to say, no, you can look at our code. It's fine. Our company's doing better quality work that people don't want to switch away from. One of the reasons that open source is important, though, is to reduce that switching cost for a government agency to be able to move from one vendor to another. A lot of the vendor strategy for these, these you know, really big, hairy government software programs is lock-in to make it impossible to switch away. And any business strategy that is contingent on let's make it impossible for our customers to leave us is probably not a great one in the long run. An argument I like to, to give to government agencies is this one. Who's going to exist longer? the state of Virginia's employment agency or Oracle. Ultimately, I think the state of Virginia is going to outlast Oracle or Microsoft or Apple. Like, let's just, let's look at the long run here. And any strategy that results in lock-in with that vendor is going to end badly at some point. A vendor that says, yes, we will let you look at the, at the source code 
uh, is a vendor that's, that's going to be more difficult to get locked in with. What needs to be open source for these unemployment insurance systems and for government generally isn't the nuts and bolts of what runs infrastructure. It's when government pays for custom software, when government says, we need to pay a vendor to build this specialized software for us for our unemployment insurance system, where you're paying for the time and materials of a vendor to produce software. That should be owned by government. That's different than buying some COTS, some actual off-the-shelf software. But I think that's really different than when government is wants something custom. Uh, imagine if you're going out to, to buy a house and you pay the entire cost of having a house built and then you have to pay to rent it. That doesn't make sense. Nobody would do that. But that's what government does when it pays for custom software that then doesn't own the source code to. Another point you make that I've frankly never thought of is, is that open source development incentivizes developers to, to write better code in the first place and to not cut corners because you have to show your work. Talk, talk about that a little bit. An experience that I had working with modern software development firms as a federal employee that I never expected was that Demanding open source software completely changed the incentive model for who bids on those contracts and then who winds up getting the work. Normally, the best software developers don't want to toil in obscurity. <laughs> like They want people to be able to see their work and be proud of it. Mm. So when it's established up front that the work that vendors are bidding on is going to be open source, then you get the kind of vendors that are proud of their work and they want people to see it. And then the employees at that vendor fight over who gets to work on that project because their work is going up on GitHub. Their future employers get to see their work, their peers get to see their work, and you're going to get the best work out of them. It's a chance to create a portfolio that otherwise is nothing but some references on LinkedIn. Instead, they wind up with tens or hundreds of thousands of lines of code that they can show others, they can take with them, they can be proud of. There are, or I think has historically have been, debates around security in the open source world in, in government in the past. A, a lot of those have been debunked, I think. But let, let me just kind of try and make a devil's argument here. Of course. Um, I, I, I can see the value of open source uh, as far as security goes in kind of mass scale or potentially mass scale software applications. Is it different when you have a super boutique system made or tailored for one state? I mean... There are, there are obviously big incentives. It's not hard to imagine a boiler room filled with Russian hackers trying to find vulnerabilities mm. in the code that runs the North Dakota UI system so they can funnel money out of the system. Doesn't the open source model only work if there is an equally large number of good guys looking at the same code? And, and is, there, is there a developer community that's large enough, that cares enough about what's under the hood of North Dakota's UI system to, to make a difference? States need to insist that the software that drive their UI systems and other crucial systems be open source so that state employees can inspect that code and make sure that it's any good. When a state procures a new building, there are state employees whose job it is to go in on a regular basis and make sure, are these studs adequate to spec? Are we putting the ceiling joists and the floor joists at the appropriate spacing? Can they bear the appropriate weight? The wood floor, is it dried adequately? Is the moisture level appropriate? And so on. There's no reason why we shouldn't extend this normal practice of inspecting purchased goods to software. But we often don't. 
So it's incumbent on states to be good purchasers, to be good procurers, to have software developers inspect the goods. They can't rely on white hat hackers just spending their spare time inspecting government software. It is on government to be good customers. There are a lot of open source licenses out there, obviously, you know, MIT, GPL, Apache. For, for government purposes, if I'm a contracting officer that wants to, to go the open source route, does it matter much, you know, which one you use or are there any particular characteristics you want to be looking for? The question of software licensing can be philosophical in government. And I'll just say that the side I come down on philosophically is that government has no right putting any license on software. A product of government is a, something that should be in the public domain. And any license is inherently restrictive beyond that. Hmm. Software should be released into the public domain and ideally released under a Creative Commons Zero license because public domain is really a U.S. concept, but the Creative Commons Zero license is even more public domain than public domain. Uh, any, any license is more restrictive than that. I, I guess one argument against that is if it's purely public domain, you've, you've opened the door to allowed some commercial developer to then make that code proprietary once they've built some extra layers on top of it. That would be great for commercial developers to be able to, to make money on on public goods. Like I, I, I think that's wonderful if the U.S. or if states can spend money on software taxpayer dollars and somebody can then take that good and make money on it, that's great. The same way that government spends a fortune on highways. And then people can use those highways to make money by shipping goods over them. Or they can see the specs for highways and use those same specs in order to build private roads. This is a good and natural thing for people to do. And I think it's great for people to be able to build on top of public intellectual property and make money on it. If somebody can take something for free and make it better and sell it, that's capitalism. That's great. As we wrap up here, you want to plug U.S. Digital Response real quick? It's, it's a really interesting and fascinating organization. Can you tell us a little bit about what the organization does? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, U.S. Digital Response is an all-volunteer organization. Just started in March uh, of a bunch of us, myself included. Uh, a lot of, of uh, technologists across the country who suddenly found themselves desperate to help with the COVID response. Uh, we've got Almost 6,000 volunteers have showed up who want to spend their own time helping local, state, and federal government deal with the effects of, of COVID through uh, nonpartisan, fast, free assistance. So it's, it's about quickly delivering critical service and infrastructure to support the needs of the public. So we'll provide consultation. Uh, we'll provide uh, some project-based assistance. Basically, we'll show up for a while and fix a problem that's been created or exacerbated by COVID, and then we we'll go away. Uh, U.S. Digital Response is not long-term staffing. We're not <laughs> replacements for government employees. But we do recognize that there are instances where government and the public really needs help. And getting some volunteers to step up to provide technical assistance is what we do best. Anybody who wants help from U.S. Digital Response, any, any uh, government employee can go to usdigitalresponse.org to find out more. There's no catch. We have nothing to sell. There's no strings attached. Yeah, it sounds very much like the digital services model that's been operating for a few years in the federal government space, except you guys don't live in the government. Yeah, it's, it's like that. I'll say a digital services model, which is taking off at a state level as well, is about uh, a dedicated team with longevity working over the course of years with a bunch of agencies in order to change how government operates. 
And compared to that, U.S. digital response, we're Taurus. We, we show up, we help with a particular problem, and then we go away. Uh, and I hope that one of our legacies can be creating support, particularly at a state and local level, for the creation of digital services groups, because that's really what government needs. L lastly, what kind of takers have you gotten so far? Has it mostly been at the state level? Yes. Uh, thanks to the federal laws around this, overwhelmingly federal agencies uh, can't violate the Anti-Deficiency Act to get help from us. So there's only narrow ways in which we can benefit the federal government. But uh, state and, and local governments, uh, we've worked with many dozens, I think I might be able to see hundreds at this point, across the country. Uh, some projects are as simple as they just need an hour's advice and we help them understand how to better procure something or what their technical options are. And in other cases, we have persistent teams building software that can be used and reproduced between states uh, in order to deal with the effects of, of COVID. That's Waldo Jaquith, a member of U.S. Digital Response, who until recently worked for GSA's 18F organization. We'll post a link to a blog post where he discusses the need for open source clauses in more detail at federalnewsnetwork.com. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.